If you're going with something that's trendy and popular, you really have to decide whether you're up to jumping on that wave and riding it in a way that allows you to compete against the people with bigger bucks and a larger organization that are looking at the same market as you and maybe deciding to swim in the same pool. Welcome to Inside Independent Publishing with IBPA. I am an independent publisher and your host, Peter Goodman of Stonebridge Press. Uh, just a reminder, in, uh, Inside Independent Publishing with IVPA is brought to you by the Independent Book Publishers Association, which you can reach at ibpa-online.org. And uh, this, by the way, is episode 60, and it's kind of a special episode in that it is the last one in this series, at least the last one that I'll be doing. So today we're, we are doing something different. We're changing it up. Uh, I'm going to be the victim of the interview today. Uh, and I'm going to be interviewed by Christopher Locke, who is the member liaison of IBPA. So, uh, welcome, Christopher. Hello, and I think victim is a perfect term to use. Yes, well, <laughs> I just want you to know that I am known for my softball questions. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be turning the questioning over to Christopher, and uh, he'll take it from here. So, uh, what do you want to know, Christopher? All right. Well, thank you so much. And first of all, I also just want to say thank you because what you've set up here is just great. Like it's, I've listened to so many of the episodes, enjoyed them. I learned a lot myself. I'm also learning, and it's fun to get to know all of the guests you've had on. Um, but then, of course, you've really put it the ball in their court where they just tell about themselves. So uh, for this episode, I really wanted to talk to you, uh, and I wanted to give an opportunity not for people just to get to know you, but also I really find that uh, indie publishers, author publishers learn so much from other people's experiences. And so uh, if you will, I wanted to kind of go on you know, this journey with you. Um, I, I really think the first place I wanted to start. So you, back in 1989, you started Stonebridge Press. Right. And I think it's interesting what that initial passion was for you to say, I want to start an independent publishing company. Well, you know, it actually wasn't I want to start an independent publishing company. I, I had been working uh, for a book publisher in Japan, well, several actually, since 1976. And I was just in love with the idea of putting books together, being an editor. And uh, in Japan in particular, I had a special opportunity to work directly with uh, designers and marketers and whatnot in ways that maybe I wouldn't have had a chance if I were working at a big U.S. company where things were much more compartmentalized. As the English language expert mm -hmm. uh, in the Japanese company, they basically ran everything past me for means of quality control and content, etc. So I got an, I I really developed a real, uh, a love for every aspect of putting the book together. Uh, so it wasn't so much. Um, wanting to be a publisher as it was wanting to stay involved in the process of seeing books evolve from manuscript into finished bound publication. That's really what my interest was, and that's really what my interest uh, still remains. Yeah, so then along those lines, because I think this is something people don't really talk as much about with indie publishers, 
is that especially in the beginning, you may actually have to have another job that brings in the money for you to survive, pay your bills. But then you have the indie publishing company that you're building. So like, what, what was that timeline in terms of you having another job to you then solely then this is the company that I run and then now you're that's your main business. Oh well cautionary tale. Don't don't do what I did. <laughs> I, I, I mean I, I when I when I came back from Japan I had a business partner that I had met in Japan and we set up an editorial operation that lasted for about two years. We were sponsored by a Japanese company and they changed direction at some point. Um, and she was very smart, uh, very capable, and she went off to become an intellectual property lawyer. And I decided that I would stay in publishing, and it was completely self-funded. And I, I basically jumped right in. I did not have, uh, I did not have another job. I had some savings, and mm. um, uh, my dad had passed away and left uh, left uh, you know some money for me to. Uh, get a foothold at least in, in starting up for a while. And so it was about a year and a half of like zero income before uh, I was actually able to uh, get things rolling. And so then what was it that got you turn turn things around where you're like, oh, what, did you have like by that point multiple books or how did you then be able to like sustain yourself uh, as like an indie publisher then? Well, it, you know, it was, it was through sales and it was – it was a very, very tiny operation. It was me, and I had a part-time assistant. Mm -hmm. So we didn't, and I had a very cheap uh, place that I was working out of near my home. So my operational overhead was extremely low, uh, and I just had to hold on for a year and a half, two years before we had books coming out. Now, I was particularly lucky in that um, mm -hmm. Japan, uh, remember, this is like the late 80s, and, uh, well, I guess there still is, you know, there's a kind of a cachet about mm -hmm. Japan. There was hardly anybody working in that area, uh, except for companies that were already in Japan. So I had a kind of a leg up on the competition, not that there was a lot of competition in this very arcane, small niche. Uh, and I, so I was able to find a distributor very quickly. Uh, I did a, uh, kind of a nice little presentation of pamphlet and I sent it to them and I said, I've got this line of books on Japan coming out. Uh, would you be interested in being my distributor? And uh, to my astonishment, they said yes. This was Publishers Group West. So uh, they had a lot of legitimacy in the uh, in the area of distribution with bookstores. So that was a huge um, advantage that I had probably over a lot of other indie publishers who were starting up without distribution. I was right in kind of at the... Um, you know, the very, very high quality, very powerful distributor right at the very beginning. Yeah. And actually, I, I did want to ask you about that because you have a wealth of knowledge uh, for other indie publishers out there. I know that sometimes getting a distributor can sometimes not be the thing that's helpful. Well, they, they get them and then they're like, oh, this didn't work out for me. So, but it sounded like for you, it did work out. So I just wonder if you had any tips for people that, you know, you're like, well, here's why it worked for me, but here's why it might not work for other people. Well, I, I, I think I have a lot to say on that subject. I, I mean, speaking from personal experience, uh, it worked out for the first couple of years. Um, certainly, PGW was a wonderful company and still are a wonderful company. Um, but at the time, they were very frontless oriented. And I didn't have enough frontless titles uh, to really 
catch fire and to, to make them super interested in all the things that I was doing. So after a couple of years, I switched to a publisher that was more in my interest area. And it was one of those deals where I went from a distributor to being a to being distributed by a publisher that worked in the same area as us on the theory that they were going to all the accounts that would already be interested in our books. But that didn't work out because, uh, and I think this is one of the pitfalls of working with another publisher, mm-hmm. is that they are kind of, um, kind of, they're using you as much as you're using them. And if you have competing titles, uh, which in we case we, we did because we were publishing in the same subject areas, hmm. uh, they tend to favor their own, you know, just because they, they, they're a lot more familiar with it and made their friends with the author or, or, or whatever. So that didn't work out either. And so we had to switch gears again. And every time we did it, it was a nightmare. You know, if you, if you have a partner and it doesn't work out for some reason, you can, be, you can split on bad terms or on amicable terms. But either way, it's going to take mm. six to eight months to recover. Everyone gets confused. you got to move the books around. It's very expensive. And then you have to introduce a whole new set of people to, uh, to what you're doing. So finding a distributor is great. Finding the wrong distributor can be a real nightmare because uh, not only for what they might do to you along the way, but extricating yourself from that agreement can be very, very tough. And it is very good to look at the agreement you're signing and make sure that you have an extrication clause that uh, during the so-called crossover period when you're say, uh, going to be working with another distributor, that distributor has the right to sell your books. Because a lot of times uh, you can't start selling until you're completely um, uh, separated from the old distributor, which can leave you in limbo for a period of six months or so while all the returns are stacking up. It, so, I mean, there, there are some real cautions there about moving around too much. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting because one thing I thought about is since you've had this company for so long, I'm also interested how you've been able to sustain it. But it also sounds like, you know, there's, you know, ebbs and flows with it. Um, but you've really been successful for, you know, this this grand period of time. So uh, is there some, something that, you know, like when you look back, you go, well, this was the thing that was consistent that I I know I always did this, whether it be really good accounting or whatever it is that then allowed you to stay in business. Um, because, you know, eventually some people, you, you have to close your doors. You're like, okay, that yeah. just didn't work. So, yeah. I mean, obviously you've, you've done a good job of it. Well, I don't consider myself a really great businessman. I mean, there are a lot of things that I'm very weak in. Um, I'm not a great salesperson. I'm not a great marketing person. I really prefer just working by myself. My my mm. my interest, as I was saying before, is really in the whole process of evolving a manuscript into a into a book, and everything else to me really seems like a lot of work that is that is not as much fun. So it's difficult for me to pay attention to the things I ought to pay attention to. Uh, I, I am uh, famous for my stinginess. I think that's a really good quality to, to have if you're a, a publisher. Uh, I always keep the overhead extremely low. I'm very uh, detail-oriented when it, when it comes to signing contracts most of the time. Uh, I have made some really bad mistakes, uh, publishing wrong stuff, uh, choosing the, the wrong authors. I've been pretty lucky, I think, in, in most of the choices that I've made and that they've been... Uh, high-quality books that um, can live a long time in the marketplace. That's one of the 
the advantage of working in the particular area that I'm that I'm working in. Uh, I would say too that um, for the most part, I've I, I've shied away from things that are like trending in the newspaper at that particular moment because I know that it's 18 to 24 months before a project actually gets out the door and the world may change greatly between uh, the time I first hear about something until the time something comes out. So I, I think I'm very cautious about following trends. One thing I will say, though, is that there are some trends that uh, uh, I've, I've jumped onto that were not necessarily uh, closest to my heart, but they were certainly good business decisions. And, and one of those was getting into Japanese popular culture, mm. which we did back in the late 1990s. Uh, manga was very popular. Anime was very popular, but they weren't popular the way then the way they are now. And we got in on the, um, not the beginning necessarily, but we got in as, as a very reliable publisher of information sources about manga and anime. There were other people who were publishing Japanese comic books, and uh, they were doing features on you know particular films and animators. But we uh, kind of took a, a, a longer approach and decided to do reference reference books about about those subject areas, and and that was a pretty good decision. And I would not have done it if I did not if I did not. If I had not had a salesperson at the time who was looking at the market and says, why aren't we publishing in this area? And I said, well, I don't particularly watch that stuff. You know, it's not, it's not my particular personal interest. And it has never become my personal interest, uh, which I hope is not a secret to anyone. Um, but uh, it was always my intent to, if we were going to do it, we were going to do a good job of it. You know, it's going to be thorough, comprehensive. It's going to be accurate. That's that's like a super important thing, especially when it comes to publishing books about Japan, because there's a lot, of, just a lot of kind of crap out there that's circulating around. I never wanted to be part of that. So it's you know, if you're if you're thinking about how to how to maintain yourself, you really have to. I mean, you do have to pay attention to the market. You have to look about what's selling, and if you're going with something that's trendy and popular, you really have to decide whether you're up to. Uh, jumping on that wave and riding it uh, in a way that allows you to compete against the people with bigger bucks and a larger organization that are looking at the same market as you and, and maybe deciding to swim in the same pool. Yeah, yeah. Well, because and that also then brings me to something I've always think about because indie publishing is its own kind of animal where the measure of success, I think in terms of like, I, so I'm an author publisher and I know when I went into it uh, for the books I have, I had certain hopes that then I realized once I understood the business were completely unrealistic. But in the initially, I was very disappointed uh, because I thought that, here, you know, a certain amount of sales of books, that's, that's success. So I wanted to see for you, because you were talking about, you know, kind of this, this ebb and flow thing. So like when you put a book out, do you have ideas like here's what the success of this book's going to look like and and what is that is it the amount it makes is it just that it makes enough money back or is it more that maybe the critical success uh i have a spreadsheet that i use that tries to uh quantify all the costs and all the revenues and has a kind of a bottom line that shows maybe that this is a success after all the overhead after everything how much is left at the end of the day and uh, 
<clears throat> I try not to proceed with anything unless that is at least a positive number. <clears throat> and if so, I guess I, I kind of consider it uh, uh, a success. If, 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 every, if every book we did was a break-even book, it would you know we it wouldn't get us very far so we have a we have a, a backlist that continues to sell that provides uh, revenue without a lot of additional capital expenditure and then we have these new books that are all supposed to be positive and in theory the bulk of them are supposed to be evergreen titles that will continue to sell um, the real trick is getting uh, you know getting to that point where it's a, where it's established and selling over the long term It'd be nice to have a lot of frontless titles that were producing revenue right, uh, a lot of revenue right from the beginning, and uh, sometimes we do have that, but it's uh, nothing that we necessarily count on. So my, I, I take a much uh, longer term view. Yeah. And um, when it when it comes to measuring success, um, I mean generally it's revenue, um, but if the, if the book is constructed. Properly, uh, you know, you, we're not extravagant, say, with production values. Then, uh, generally, you know, if we if if we're selling at least fifteen hundred, two thousand copies of a book, that's generally going to be a break even, regardless of you know which particular book it is. And then everything on top of that is, you know, gravy over the over the coming months and years. But that's a very low number. You know, if you talk to a big publisher. 2,000 copies is, uh, they, they wouldn't touch it for that. Right, yeah. But see, and I think that's one of the good things about indie publishing is that concept of, of success, you know, where you go, okay, well, here's, and I, I like that idea of you talking about, you know, business in terms of your overhead being able to be low because you don't have a staff of 50 people or, you know, all these office buildings all over the world or whatever. So uh, that's, I, I don't know if luxury is the right word, but it's certainly a benefit, I think, of being an indie publisher. Um, so then you mentioned about these, Backlist titles. The idea of that. If I if I could just jump in a jump in a second about, you know, there, there's also kind of a false economy. I mean, you talk about having, you know, few staff. Well, with few staff, there's you you can do less. If if someone is really serious, investing in good people to do more and get the books out there and move stuff in the beginning is not a bad investment, in my opinion. Uh, well, that's interesting. Then, like at what like. Like how much of a staff have you had over the years or do you have contractors or how does that work for you? Well, I have had as many as I think six or seven full-time employees. That was back in the in uh, year 2005. I sold Stonebridge to a Japanese company and they were willing to invest. And with that investment money, I did hire more people and we ramped up. So we were doing, I don't know, 30, 30 titles a season, which was really huge for us. And it was a lot to manage. I really didn't enjoy that 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 growth, you know, because I I, I kind of like to be hands on. But since then, I've I've really uh, shrunk back, and now I've got a um, part time uh, assistant who does a lot of the InDesign work and a lot of the um, kind of resourcing, checking facts, working on manuscripts initially, getting them into shape. And I've got a publicist that is part time. I have always had a publicist. I've always thought that, uh, no offense to all the publicists listening, but I, I, I always thought that that was a, a very uh, poor use of money to hire a, a very, very expensive publicist for a single book. I'm not saying there aren't good times when you might do it, but when you hire a publicist, they keep all the information that they've developed and you can't, you, you can't repurpose it. 
so the, the real advantage that we've had with a publicist over the years is we collect all this information and we keep it and we build on it. And we have a, a great database now of all these contacts and people that we have personal relationships with. Um, if it was a true specialty area and we needed the uh, services of a specialized publicist, uh, we would consider hiring one. But I've always thought it was a much better use of money to keep someone on staff and uh, keep all the, the, the data and the resources to ourselves. Now, that's a very interesting point. And uh, I do think that, you know, it just depends. I think some people, um, you know, that I've talked to have had a publicist and, you know, they, they $20,000 later, you know, they're like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened. Or, you know, they, it worked really well. And it was, a you know, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it goes both ways. Um, well, one of the things before we end, I, I'm really interested in you, you know, over your career, like, is there anything that is like a particular high point for you? You know, something that you're like, that's, you know, that was one of the, the greatest days uh, that you're really proud of. Hmm. Well, you kind of put me on the spot there because I, <laughs> I think back and, you know, I remember I was talking about um, uh, when PGW took us on. Yes. I was starting out. Uh, it's not like I didn't know anything about publishing. And in fact, I knew exactly how important PGW was. And when they said we'd be willing to uh, distribute you, that was a real high point because it, it meant there was a way forward. And... Absent that, I'm not sure what would have happened. It, it certainly would have been a very, very different experience. So that was that, that was a real uh, turning point. And I, I know the you know the other triumphs, if you can call them triumphs, I, that seems a kind of a hyperbolic term. Is the sense of getting settled in and uh, feeling like yeah, this is what this is what I should be doing. This is what I meant to do. When I when I yeah, you know, I said that the company got sold to a Japanese company in 2005. Then I reacquired it in 2010 because they had various issues going on in Japan. They couldn't they couldn't really support us anymore, uh, and I was uh, kind of unwilling to reacquire Stonebridge um, because my plan had been kind of move off in a different direction with books, but but not not like that. And so I, I was in a bit of a funk, I think, for a couple of years, uh, at least a little uncertain of what the future direction was going to be. And I'm not sure what happened, but it was several years ago, uh, something clicked in my mind and I had a sense of uh, overwhelming relief sweeping over me saying, yes, I am really comfortable doing this. I really like this. I love working with all these authors and putting these books together and just working in this in this area, so I'm really happy, and, and that that was not like a single aha. Well, it was kind of an aha moment, but it was a gradual build up to that. And I can't put a, a date on it exactly, but I know it happened, and that was a very wonderful moment to um, feel myself kind of rededicated to what I'd started out doing many years before. That's a really beautiful sentiment because I do think that that's what a lot of us are looking for. We're looking to be fulfilled and. With something like indie publishing, uh, if you're an author publisher or independent publisher, I think at the end of the day, there is this drive. And I love that, that you know, you, you got to that point where you had enough knowledge, experience and success that you're that you you eased into it. And um, I really love that concept. Um, so before we wind down, I, I just wanted to say, you know, like we talk about 
as IBPA having like a community and it's really where everybody kind of works together to help each other succeed. And, you know, uh, really you uh, are an exemplary member of the IBPA community. And this podcast is only one example of that. Like you, you've created this place for people to learn. And uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know IBPA does and just how lucky we are to have you. So I just wanted to get that on record. Wow. Well, thank you, Christopher. It's been wonderful to be uh, involved in this. I really uh, love IBPA as an organization. I feel that, um, you know, it really suits me. It suits my personality, what I do. And as you know, I mean, because you're part of the, the very, very supportive staff, it's it's a real community, and you guys in the office do an amazing job of keeping everything together. Thank you. So thank you from all of us to all of you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so those are my questions. I hope <laughs> I hope that was uh, was good. You didn't feel on the hot seat too much. No, no. Yeah, no. You're a, a great interviewer. That, that was that was fun. Good. That's that's all I needed to make myself get through the rest of the day. Thank you. Well, thank you, Christopher. And uh, once again, uh, that was Christopher Locke, the member liaison of IBPA. And I'd like to thank you, Christopher, for uh, supporting the podcast for the last three years. This is episode 60, by the way. Bravo. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, it was certainly interesting to be on the other side of the microphone for this, the last episode I'll be doing for the IBPA podcast. Now, I have talked to a lot of interesting people over the last two and a half years. And, of course, I feel I've really barely scratched the surface of what's going on in indie publishing and more importantly, what direction we're all headed. When I began this podcast in the spring of 2018, there was, of course, no pandemic. And now our collective response to having this terrible disease in our homes and neighborhood is perhaps the most significant event to hit the publishing industry in decades, if indeed there's ever been anything like this with such far-reaching impact. Making books hasn't really changed, though, from the mostly solitary act of writing to the acts of editing and designing, uh, still perform largely by individuals. What's really changed as a result of COVID-19 is the aspects of books that are communal. The retail bookshop as a gathering place has been shuttered, libraries are closed, and book groups meeting in people's homes have just stopped meeting. But all these lost opportunities and closed-down venues have evolved into virtual spaces or stopgap measures that over time are going to become permanent fixtures. Once brick-and-mortar bookshops open for business again, do you believe that the online bookshop.org is going to just disappear? Or will it continue to play a role in helping physical bookshops service customers in all new ways? Book groups have now migrated online and grown their numbers. You don't need to live in the same city to join a book group and make new friends. COVID has expanded the reach of publishers and in many cases, fully disintermediated them from their retail and wholesale partners. And it's done the same for authors, putting them in direct touch with readers all over the world. So while COVID has ravaged our geographic communities, it's expanded our virtual ones, and it's made it possible for more and more authors to reach more and more readers. Once the vaccines are available and CDC has declared the nation mostly cured, however, we may go back to things the way they were in some senses, but many of the evolutionary and revolutionary changes in publishing and book selling are definitely here to stay and will become the new norm, the foundations on which our future will be built. 
That's not to minimize the terrible effects of disruption. Lost jobs, lost lives, none of these can be brought back. The sadness and pain are profound. So I don't think it's time to celebrate anything or to rejoice in the new opportunities this terrible disease has forced us to confront. But like most human endeavors, we'll get through this, remembering what we lost and trying to build something new. Well, thanks to all the listeners, and thanks especially to IBPA for sponsoring this podcast and helping it connect with its audience. I'm very grateful. And ever mindful of the great words of inspiration first spoken to me by my bosses in Japan. Let's have publishing fun.